Gentlemen and MBs, and welcome to Worry Desh Show. I'm Shaden, and it's Patreon request time again, which does require a bit of housekeeping before we begin. This is partly because of the history behind the movie that I'll be covering today, and partly because, unlike the previous entry which I covered, so I could squirrel away more money to my hidden Cayman Island slush fund, this one's actually good. Damn good, even, so it does require a short prelude. So I have a confession. Up until this point, I had never seen a Satoshi Kon film before. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I've been living under a rock all these years, I hear you say, which is patently false, because I actually live under a bridge, but that's besides the point. I knew of Khan secondhand from hearing people talk of him and his films, and Doc has covered Paprika on another entry in our back catalogue, which I highly recommend you check out. Otherwise, though, this is virgin territory for me, and it's territory I wish I'd explored much sooner, because to give you the shotgun blast approach to a critical summary, Tokyo Godfathers is fantastic. And that's why I should note the tragedy of Khan's death in 2010 from pancreatic cancer. This is the only work of his that I've seen thus far, and I will absolutely be covering more of them, such as Perfect Blue, in future podcasts. But it does pain me to think of all the wonderful works that could have sprung from Khan's vibrant imagination had he not passed so early in his life. Furthermore, from the behind-the-scenes interviews I saw of Khan in relation to Tokyo Godfathers, he seemed like a charismatic, friendly and affable person which alone is cause enough to mourn someone's death before their time. So therefore, I respectfully wish Satoshi a peaceful rest, and my thanks for the works of his that he did give us. I've heard that Godfather is arguably one of his weaker entries, which in of itself is a good reason for the descriptor of relative to exist. But with all that said, let me recount a fairy tale for you. And like many Yuletide stories, it begins the night before Christmas. Part 1. Voices in the Dark Tokyo Godfathers is the story of three homeless individuals living inside the titular city. Miyuki, a runaway schoolgirl, Hannah, a trans lady and former drag queen, and Jin, whose sole hobby starts and ends at a bottle of the spirit that shares his namesake. The three of them, of myriad backgrounds, fortunes, personal failures and circumstances, start the film at the heights of Tokyo's Angel Tower but otherwise at rock bottom. Rummaging through trash in a garage, however, they find something unexpected. A barely days old newborn abandoned amongst the refuse. In the original story of Jesus' birth, there were of course three wise men who were guided by a star over Bethlehem, travelling many leagues and bearing gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, the last of which sounds like the noise I make after drinking a shot tequila through my nose. In Tokyo Godfathers, on the other hand, our wise men instead resolve to take the child back to its parents and away from its manger of garbage, and in doing so they prove that while they don't have material gifts that are frankly too expensive to even get the duty free, nor any great wisdom to be honest, they still prove that they have real value as people who have the greatest gift one can give to another human being, which is the ability to care. 
That's the non-spoiler summary, but without elaborating too much further, I'll say what really struck me about Tokyo Godfathers is how packed it is with plot threads and narratives, without being overstuffed such that each individual theme or idea ends up underdeveloped or overexposed. Our three leads all get fleshed out backstories of their own and a kind of resolution of their own flaws and issues, all while being swept as plots like gang warfare, the death of a man at least 2,000 years old, and healing a broken family. There's a tapestry of vignettes and moments weaved together here that encircle the main plot of bringing Hyoko, the abandoned girl, back to her parents safely. The Blu-ray of Tokyo Godfathers that I used for watching the film included several behind-the-scenes documentaries from Animax, and it's worth bringing them in as I mention the voice actors and actresses behind our three leads. Miyuki is voiced by Aya Akamoto, for whom it was her first and only voice acting role in anime, if my anime is listed believed, and she turns in an excellent performance from start to finish as the headstrong, rebellious Miyuki, to the point that I took a few seconds to process that this was somehow her first role as opposed to her being a seasoned voice actress. She gives a wonderful range of performances, both from burning indignation at the situations the trio find themselves into, quiet and painful weeping as she tries to call her father from a public phone booth. Aya also provides some interesting insights into the voice acting process in this film, which I will elaborate more on later. Joining Okamoto in being a one-hit wonder is Yoshiaki Umagaki who plays Hannah, which is a massive shame as like Okamoto, he absolutely knocks it out of the park, performing as the character who perceives themselves as God's mistake, but proves that while she might not have actual gold for Kyoko, she does possess a heart made of it, even if Hannah spends a substantial chunk of the movie reading Jin the Riot Act. Something that I noticed in the behind-the-scenes documentary is that the animation was mostly completed first and then the lines recorded afterwards, which meant that Umagaki and company had to match their performances to the existing shots and cuts. Now, it's not unheard of to do this the other way, where a voice actor's physical performance can greatly influence a character's animated depiction. Uh, see Mark Hamill playing the Joker in the Batman animated series for a clear example of this. But while I praise Okamoto and Umagaki for their performances, I do think it's fair that this animation first approach was used, so I do think it helped to ease them into their roles. And suffice it to say that Hannah's amazing level of emotion, all the way from camp coquettishness to unbridled fury, is met by his performance admirably, something which is reflected in his very expressive nature in the behind-the-scenes documentary. Now, whether or not that's an affectation that mirrors his performance as Hannah for the purpose of the documentary, I can't say, but he definitely nailed the role for certain. That just leaves Jin, and if you think the rule of freeze applies here on new voice actors blowing it away, you'd be partially wrong. You see, Jin is voiced by veteran actor Toru Imori, and he brings a grim and weary timbre to our resident grouch who believes that booze is a valid form of breakfast. Imori, you see, has appeared in over five dozen films and many tiger dramas, so to call him prolific would be a massive understatement. He would later return to work with Satoshi Kon on Paprika, voicing Seijiro Inui and he similarly pops up in the behind-the-scenes documentary where he is seen acting out lines in the same space as Okamoso and Umagaki, which for me personally is always the move you should make as a voice-acting supervisor, since it allows the actors to physically gesticulate and interact. While this of course doesn't directly end up on screen unless you're earning your honorary doctorate in rose scoping, human gestures, behaviours, speech patterns and dialogue are all deeply intertwined. 
I don't think there's a single podcast, for example, that I've recorded for War Desh Show where I personally haven't gestured with my hands as if I were actually talking with Doc or others in person, and I'm actually doing so now, funnily enough, as I record this. So having that physical presence to play off really helps enrich a group performance. It certainly shows in the film with the chemistry the three characters have with each other, which is in no small part thanks to the people that give them their voices. But as much as I wax lyrical about our three wise people and the voices behind them, I'd be utterly remiss and likely clinically insane if I didn't talk about how this movie looks and moves. Part 2. The View from the Streets Now, I'm not a Sakuga man, not by a long shot, but if I had to describe what I look out for in animation in general, it would be two things. Verisimilitude and small details and elements that help texture a scene. These aren't strictly the same thing. Uh, Verisimilitude, apart from sounding like the title of a Maxis game designed by David Lynch, is pretty much what it sounds like, a plausible depiction of reality with sufficient details to back that up. If you have a still image of a desk, for example, and that desk has no items on it in an otherwise occupied and utilised space, that isn't verisimilitudinous. Stick a computer, a notepad, a pack of glasses wipes, a first aid kit, and a very charming and bald Englishman there, and you've got verisimilitude, save for one element of course, but I'll leave that to your imagination. In the case of Tokyo Godfathers, what struck me as I watched the film was the level of detail in rendering Tokyo as a living, breathing city, warts and all. Sure, the creators actually photographed various locations to serve as the foundation for scene construction, but it goes beyond that. Take the scene of Jin, near death, wandering the back alleys before being found by the angel lady who works at Hannah's former club. It'd be simple, efficient, and cheap to draw this location as merely planes and textures, devoid of objects. But Tokyo Godfathers is better than that, instead showing air conditioning units, trash bags, and dumpsters to name a few things. Then contrast that with the main streets, where there are plenty of lights and vending machines visible in plain sight, and here the very similitude serves a contrast. There are plenty of provisions for the public who live in plain view, but for the homeless and those who live out of sight, there are no such concessions. This will be important later, but for now these details help sell the Tokyo of Tokyo Godfathers as a lived-in environment, even if that environment isn't equally hospitable to everyone. The other thing that I mentioned is small things that help texture a scene. These are visual elements that don't necessarily make logical sense, but are more there to help build motifs or themes, or to serve as a kind of chamber music to the actual events of the whole text or just an individual scene or moment. One such part is noted on the behind-the-scenes Blu-ray, which is when Jin is attacked by thugs around the end of the first act. During this scene, with Jim being assaulted on the bottom of the frame in a wide shot with all five of those wankers visible in frame, at the top we see ten lit rooms in a building in the background. As Jin fights back and is then overwhelmed, some of the lights turn on and off, which the creator's remarks was like the life bar in a fighting game UI. Now that alone is something I can get behind, since I get the impression if Jim was in Guilty Gear he'd probably be an absolute beast. Provided you can perform his boozing soul safely though. You can see this also, for example, in the taxis that are used throughout the film, because they have an angel symbol on their roofs. In particular, the one used when Miyuki is kidnapped is taxi registration 12-25, but thankfully it wasn't a dome with a shiny red nose at least. Other things of note are Hannah keeping a picture of herself and Ken in their shanty shack in the park long before Ken's name and their history together is revealed in the film, or even the contrast between Miyuki's face before the incident with her father versus the present day in the film, the former being plump, the latter being slim, giving us a hint at the passage of time and that she's losing weight due to being undernourished. 
there's likely plenty of stuff I've missed, so to spare you the agony of going through everything frame by frame and turning the rest of this podcast into repeats of the phrase, zoom and enhance, I'll end this section by mentioning that Tokyo Godfathers was animated by Madhouse, who were either a legendarily talented and brilliant anime studio, or a coven of blood wizards, since to make shows as good-looking as Tatami Galaxy, No Game No Life, Aka 13, and of course One Punch Man Season 1, to name a few, you obviously need some command of the dark arts. Madhouse also works on the previously mentioned Paprika and cons of the film, so all told their combined resume is mightily impressive, and I hope that gives you enough of an idea what a visual treat this film is. But like I said earlier, I am no Sakaga man, and while I don't believe that approach is without value, it's the story, the script, and the ideas present that I like to pluck at most. So let's move on to talk about the heavier elements and ideas behind Tokyo Godfathers. Part 3. The Absent Safety Net Homelessness is a civilizational blight, I just want that to be clear at the outset of this section. It is a failure of social structures and safeguards that allow someone to become destitute, and the effects on one's physical, mental, and emotional health are all pretty crystal clear. Stephen W. Wang published a paper in the CMAJ in 2001 titled Homelessness and Health, link in the doobly-doo, which examined the well-being of Canadian homeless people in and out of shelter-based environments. In the subsection regarding health problems among homeless people, the first point Huang makes highlights that the mortality rate for young street youths in Montreal is nine times higher for males, and take, you know, steal yourself for this bit, 31 times higher for females, versus the general youth population of Quebec. The list of issues Wang describes throughout this section reads like a horror story written for excessive copying and pasting from the DSM-4. Seizures, diabetes, COPD, skin and foot diseases, tuberculosis, and so on and so forth. Now, while this is specific to Canada, I don't think it's unreasonable to extrapolate from that to Japan and other Western countries. And as evidenced in the film, all three of our heroes have some apparent issue that rises from the poor environment they live in. Hannah, for example, coughs up blood at least twice in the film's runtime and is hospitalised on the second. Joke as I might, Jin clearly suffers from alcoholism and has missing teeth as well. Miyuki, by merit of only the relative recency of her becoming transient, is still losing weight, and in the presence of both Hannah and Jin, we clearly see what potential health issues could befall her. With the exception of Hannah, these problems are not pushed front and centre all the time, but they are nonetheless visible. However, I do have a potentially controversial take to offer here, so if you'll just allow me an indulgence to explain. While I am of the belief that homelessness must be eradicated, I also accept that becoming homeless in the first place can sometimes be, or feel like, a necessary decision one must make in order to escape a situation that seems worse or is actually worse. To offer up a hypothetical scenario, imagine you are the partner of someone who abuses you in your home every evening, and despite all your attempts to seek help from the police, it hasn't been stopped. You have no family or friends who can help or who you think can help, and you have no spare money to escape. What do you do? Do you stay and allow the abuse to continue, or do you become destitute of your own free will because surely it can't be worse than what you go through every single night? Now sure, this example sounds a bit extreme, but it's worth noting that perception plays a key part in making such a drastic decision, even if, objectively speaking, that there are people out there who can and would help you escape this awful scenario and give you somewhere to stay. If you don't believe that to be true, then that reality might as well not exist. And it isn't implausible to think in that hypothetical that I made up a moment ago that someone could be so traumatised or even gaslit by their partner as to think that way. Homelessness is a phenomenon that, beyond the broad diagnosis of being a deep societal failure, has its roots in a myriad of causes. 
Housingrights.org.uk highlights two categories of risk factors for homelessness, structural and individual. Both are about as you'd expect. Structural relates to things like housing availability and affordability, growing poverty, income inequality, and so on. While individual factors include things like mental health, drug and substance abuse, relationship issues, and similar things like that. Now, I bring this distinction up because it helps explain an initial dissatisfaction that I had with Tokyo Godfather's depiction of homelessness, which I eventually U-turned on after a bit of thought, and I realised it actually does cover both categories. The individual factors are conveyed through our characters, but the structural factors are shown in the film also. And on my first watch, I felt Tokyo Godfathers didn't have anything to say on how homelessness might be combated. Sure, it has no overt moment of staring into the camera and pointing an accusing finger at the audience, or a broad stroke statement or speech from any one of its characters on the sickness that is homelessness and subsequently the magic cure-all for it, but that is for the best, I realise now, since, as I hope I've given you an idea of, homelessness is a societal ill that has causes both complex and varied, and plus it wouldn't have exactly gelled with the relatively light-hearted tone of the film, to be fair. So just what does Tokyo Godfather say about homelessness on a structural level? There are a few moments sprinkled throughout the film, such as the trio visiting a pop-up soup kitchen outside the church, also Miyuki having to buy water of all things, the absurdity of which is even noted by the cashier who serves her. Also, Jin speaks to the doctor who treats Hannah and is told that homelessness is a lifestyle choice, in a tone and manner that one uses when speaking to a mother-in-law whom you tolerate but secretly despise, or if you're handling a trade negotiation for cotton buds, mothballs, or engine oil. Hannah's hospital trip also cost the trio 30,000 yen, which was all that Jin had saved up to that point, and to really pour salt into the wound, the cashier who informs of this points out this could be covered on a medical insurance card, which, of course, none of them have as they're homeless. And lastly, in the pharmacy the group stop at, they are asked to leave so that other customers might sit in the cafe bar area, when the only other customer is a drunken arsehole who mistook the place for a 7-Eleven and a bottle of peroxide for Maker's Mark. Food, water and healthcare are all touched upon in the film as things our heroes have the least access to, but due to their state of poverty are in the most need of, and these are all linked together to Boo. A poor diet of whatever scraps you can find in discarded rubbish or the absolute basics dispensed at shelters or soup kitchens can result in malnutrition, a situation prompted by a lack of money. A lack of clean running water because you're living on the street similarly means spending what you can on bottled water or, like, or drinking god knows what, which could be full of diseases and other nasty shit. This in turn then puts you at risk of becoming sick and needing medical care, which in turn costs even more money. It's a death spiral that reads like the election manifesto of fucking Ebenezer Scrooge, yet it's the reality that many homeless people face. The film spotlights these moments and accentuates in particular Miyuki's store visit and Jin's talk with the doctor, with silence in the background, allowing the absurdity of what's going on to come through the matter-of-factness of the dialogue. It's this spotlighting that allows the film to point out the logical and ethical pretzel that is societal systems and structural factors that actively exacerbate the issues homeless people face, but without it clashing against the relatively light tone that runs throughout. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't a place for a more upfront and sense depiction of these structural factors and the criticisms thereof, but insofar as what I believe Satoshi Kon's aim was with the film being a fun, bittersweet Christmas tale of miracles and mayhem, I think this was the best way to have done it without either going in too hard on those particular structural problems, without also ignoring them entirely. It points out the absent safety net in society, a concept I'll elaborate on more later, without allowing it to overshadow and clash with the rest of the content. But that's just one side of the coin. 
There are also the individual factors I mentioned before, and it is here where the film has much of its meat, which we'll cover next. Get ready for discussions of stabbing, gambling, and crushing guilt. All the things that make Christmas great, am I right? Right? Uh, hello? Part 4. What I did wrong. I mentioned earlier that I can believe in a person doing what is necessary to escape a horrible, unconscionable situation like being caught in an abusive household, but I also said that sometimes the act of doing so might be at odds with reality. It's a perception of threat, or discomfort rather, that might cause someone to become destitute of their own free will, even if it is just a perception and not based on reality. I bring this up because it's arguable that all three of our heroes in Tokyo Godfathers became homeless in some sense out of their own free will, in particular out of a sense of shame and fear. Starting with Miyuki, she left home after she stabbed her police inspector father with a knife when he took away her cat, Angel, whom, as it turns out, she had taken in from the streets as a stray in a vein of irony so deep it might as well run to the earth's core. In Jin's case, he took to the streets after he gambled his way through his family's bank account like a hot knife through butter, and figured the best follow-up move would be to get a loan from the mob, which is kind of like thinking that after feeding your hand to a shark that it'd be unsporting not to let it have your arm as well. For Hannah... Between the death of her boyfriend Ken, whom I mentioned earlier, and an incident at the club she sang at where she assaulted some twat of a heckling patron, she chose to flee to the streets, having nowhere else left that she felt she could go. I ran away from home once myself when I was about 12 after overhearing a pretty volcanic argument between my parents. Now, it was only for the evening, mind, and I was eventually picked up by the police who went looking for me. This obviously isn't the same thing as being homeless, but I mention it because at the time I walked out the door, even as a young teenager... I felt like I had no other option. The argument was all around me in the walls of the home, and I felt like I was suffocating. It had that kind of physiological feeling where inaction was impossible, like the reaction you get when you accidentally touch a hot stove, you of course pull your hand away. So while the individual events that prelude Miyuki, Jin, and Hannah's falls into homelessness aren't arguably the absolute end of the world, just as that family argument I overheard wasn't, what's important is how they themselves perceive those events and the sense of shame and guilt they feel as a result, which then propels them into doing something that's as crazy on the surface as running away from home. What the film shows us, though, is that for all three of our heroes, the events that led to them leaving their homes of their own will are either bygones to the people involved or never mattered to begin with. For Miyuki, her father places an advert in the paper telling her that Angel has come home, and when they encounter each other on opposite subway trains, his reaction is, is just one of desperation just to try and talk to her, with a look devoid of any malice, hatred, or resentment. For Jin, he meets his daughter again after many years at the very same hospital where Hannah is treated, finding out that she has become a nurse, and in a similar fashion, she holds no ill will towards Jin despite all that happened when she was much younger. For Hannah, the owner of the club whom she calls mother seems nonplussed by the incident with that heckling wanker, and kind of stunned that Hannah left at all, suggesting there is always a place for her there. For all three of our wise men and women, their state of being homeless seems to be a kind of self-imposed exile, backed up by various reflections they each have as the story progresses, such as Miyuki's emotional breakdown in the phone booth and Jin's self-degrading analysis of his own failure as a father. Furthermore, Jin lies to Hannah and Miyuki about his history, claiming he was a professional racing cyclist when, in reality, he's more Tour de Chance than Tour de France, if you follow. Why lie to them, though? For the same reason anyone lies about their past when it has no tangible impact on those they're telling the lie to, a sense of self-loathing and an appraisal, true or false, of how awful that makes them look. 
I talked before about the absent safety net in societal terms, like a lack of readily available free drinking water, or the inverse relationship between those needing healthcare versus those who can afford it, or hell, there's even the fact that, you know, in the United Kingdom there are more empty homes than actual homeless people, if you want another lens through which to view this insanity. But there are other safety nets that matter too. In the immediate aftermath of Miyuki stabbing her father, the only responses we get from her parents are her father's pained questioning of why she did it, and her mother throwing out prayer at a higher rate of fire than the minigun on an F-16 fighter jet. I'm not saying Miyuki should have been allowed to take an angel by default, but clearly there's an intermediary position of actually, you know, talking things out. I think this all speaks to the film's idea of us just being a little more honest and empathetic with each other. It inspires us to care about the plight of homeless people, a sentiment which hilariously was lost on one of the industry bigwigs who interviewed Satoshi Kon for the documentary, which I mentioned much earlier on. He in turn claimed, you see, that homeless people aren't marksable, so I guess he didn't actually watch the film and just spent his time playing Granblue or something. But beyond that, it inspires us to care about each other a bit more. This is reflected in the scene between Miyuki and the wife of the assassin, who, by the way, conveniently stops Jin from murdering both a bottle of booze and the mob croc who he owns money to, by jumping the queue to plug in full of bullets, of course. But anyway, that scene is between the hitman's wife, who is Latin American and speaks Spanish, and Miyuki, who is Japanese both in ethnicity and native tongue. Despite the communication barrier between the two, they forge a connection over family, and when Miyuki begins to cry about what's happened between her and her father, the wife comforts her with a cool-down hook. If such a language barrier can be no impediment to basic human empathy and caring, then perhaps our perceptions and stereotypes of homeless people shouldn't be either, or the instance that colour and break down our lives like Ken's death did to Hannah. The absent safety nets aren't just things like free healthcare or readily available drinking water for all, it's also the social and familial support, care and love that doesn't so much as keep people in their homes, but rather reaffirms the emotional warmth such a place should have, even in trying times. This is especially true when you consider Sachiko, Kyoko's mother, and by mother I mean kidnapper. Now I say that without rancor because Sachiko's backstory is the cruelest kind. She herself, you see, was pregnant but suffered a stillbirth and is still traumatised mentally and emotionally from that. Her theft of Kyoko from the hospital ward is a grief-driven reaction, a refusal to believe her own child is dead, instead substituting him for another. It's obviously a reprehensible act, but one way you can understand how Sachiko got to that point. It doesn't help that her husband was, like the fictive scenario I concocted earlier, a piece of shit, although he himself draws some sympathy through the scene between him and Jin. Jin, you see, sitting in the husband's apartment amongst heaps and mounds of bin liners and rubbish bags, is more at home than the actual man living in his own home. It's a mind-boggling contrast on the surface, but the reality is that for all that Sachiko and her husband have a roof over their heads, their lives have been blown apart and left in tatters just as it has with Jin. You might well describe the death of their child as like being hit by a precision mortar strike, with the refuse in the apartment being the debris left as a result. This again reinforces the idea of both a structural and individual factor, because clearly whatever postnatal counselling Sachiko needed hasn't helped, and her husband seems about as useless as a chocolate fireguard. So while not ending up homeless herself, her tragedy mirrors that of Miyuki, Jin and Hannah in the lack of support they all needed at their darkest times, both from the state and from their loved ones. Indeed, the safety net they do end up with is each other, as a kind of found family relying on those equally at rock bottom. Miyuki, for example, dreams of Jin and Hannah in place of her actual parents, and in the run-up to Sachiko attempting to jump to her death with Kyoko in hand, Miyuki discards some of her homeless garments as she comes up the stairs and pleads with Sachiko not to jump. 
While not equivalent, of course, Miyuki has some understanding of what it's like to have something taken away from you without rhyme or reason, specifically Angel. So she tries her best to relate to Sachiko, and between her, Hannah, and Sachiko's husband after he finally put his spine back in, they all bring her around. The only issue of this is that, well, it shouldn't have gotten to this point in the first place. It can be very difficult to muster the will to act in times of trauma or difficulty, and this is especially true when something unexpected happens. Things can take you by surprise, and often in a fight-or-flight situation, it's kind of funny how often the latter wins. But there's a solution to apathy that Tokyo Godfathers also covers, one that Jin references at least twice. And while he might not end up creating traps using paint cans, Christmas baubles, and a blowtorch, that doesn't mean he isn't a man of action. Part 5. Heroism and Coincidence So let's engage in a little thought exercise here. What do you think makes someone a hero? Is it fantastical powers of a scientific or magical nature, or is it the extensive training of one's body, mind, and skill sets? Arguably, it's none of these things. Heroism, you see, to me at least, is the will to act when others will not, to intervene to make things better. It's a thing that doesn't often happen towards the homeless, even in the simple act of donating some spare change. So it's a welcome and illuminating twist that for all of Jin's protestations that he, Hannah and Miyuki aren't action heroes, he is initially only half right, and then by the film's conclusion, flat out wrong. For people so down on their luck, living day by day and meal to meal, plenty of opportunities present themselves to our trio for them to show that trait of caring and empathy which the general public would often deny them. For example, there's the moment in which the three save the accuser boss from being run over by his own car. Or how about when Jin saves the old homeless man from freezing to death in the street, allowing him instead to die on his own terms and also arguably serving as Jin's own ghost of Christmas future. And then there's of course the climax of the film with Sachiko being chased by our wise men and women. And while Jin might not be crawling through air vents in a high-rise office block that's overrun with terrorists, he proves himself an action hero in that moment both by acting in the first place and secondly by doing so by catching up to Sachiko's truck on a push bike, which is a wonderful little twist given his earlier lies about being a professional cyclist. I've used the word heroes to describe Jin, Miyuki and Hannah throughout this talk, and it's not simply just a convenient phrase to use, it accurately describes their actions in the movie towards not just Kyoko, but many of the people they meet. What's more, the threesome all have enough baggage and issues to deal with that would make it understandable if they felt they had no power or will to intervene in the cases I mentioned earlier. Things such as just simply being homeless, to their own personal demons and backstories, to the fact that they have Kyoko with them and she understandably takes priority over all else. Despite all of these things that would make you get why they choose not to intervene, they do. It all leads into the climax of the film, where Hannah manages to catch a falling Kyoko, and with her in hand, manages to land safely at street level thanks to a giant banner and a gust of wind, perfectly timed as if intended through divine intervention perhaps. Jumping to grab Kyoko could well have cost Hannah her life, but given everything we see of her in the film, her life in exchange for Kyoko's is a decision she'd make in a nanosecond, I'd wager. Actions have consequences though. For example, saving the Yakuza boss's life from his own car parking faux pas takes Jin, Hannah and Miyuki to his daughter's wedding reception, which is where his son-in-law and Jin's criminal bankroller are found, who is then nearly assassinated, which results in Miyuki being taken hostage, which causes Hannah to split from Jin when she becomes sick and hospitalised, and eventually I end up in the hospital and oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. Well, yeah, 
That's just a small segment of the film, but it's the modus operandi for much of the film's various vignettes and subplots that surround the core objective of returning Kyoko to her mother. The heroic deeds our three leads commit whisk them off to new locations and stops on their journey, which in turn exposes them to new situations that demand they exercise that sense of initiative and good Samaritan nature which they originally displayed when they plucked Kyoko from the refuse. Whatever surprises come their way, they exemplify the best qualities of caring and empathy that are so often lacking in people, such as those on the subway trains that we see in the first act of the film. The coincidences in the film also tie into its religious undertones. After all, what we might write off as coincidence could instead be the outcome of a meticulous plan by God, and as I've said before, there's an issue with moving in mysterious ways in that no one can then truly ascribe the actions of any deity to them rather than just pure random chance. To the film's credit, while it does acknowledge various aspects of Christianity as it pertains both to the titular holiday and Hannah's own assertions that God views her as a mistake, which, by the by, that's a sentiment I absolutely do not share, it never definitively states various events and happenstances, such as Hannah's miraculous descent with Kyoko, to God or any divine force. If you choose to read it as God's intervention saving Hannah or reuniting the trio throughout various trials and wanderings off the beaten path, that's a perfectly valid view to take, as is viewing it through an agnostic or even atheist lens. What's better, the Christian perspective of a helping holy hand doesn't invalidate our character's agency, it just often either resolves a situation or puts them in one without diminishing any of the efforts they actually make in trying to help others. You probably know of the perennial Christmas character the Grinch, who looks like a hairy coconut after it escapes an exploding green paint factory. Well, he had a heart that grew three sizes in one day. For our leads in Tokyo Godfathers, no such growing was required. Despite all the hard knocks they've had in life, they never lost that. The worst it ever gets is Jin's various moments of reticence, but he overcomes them all in the end either immediately or when later reunited with Hannah and Miyuki. And perhaps if people so down on their luck as they are can still give a damn about their fellow man when the unexpected happens, maybe we can too. Part 6. The Night After Christmas Unfortunately, I do have a bar humbug to give about the film, perhaps the only real issue I have with it to be honest, and that's with its ending. But before I lay it out in detail, there is something that I should clarify, a concept you might have heard me talk about before here on the podcast, but it is worth revisiting before I get into the weeds of this. That is, the endless ending. Yes, yes, the concept sounds daft like pacifist serial killer or Toriyo of a conscience, but the idea is this. Your story ends in such a way that you can imagine the characters' futures in any number of viable ways, a kind of iteration on the old riding off into the sunset trope. It's essentially open to your interpretation how the next chapter of their lives could unfold after the current one closes. Take the first season of The Promised Neverland in a Vacuum, for example. Spoilers, by the way. That show closes on a new dawn for Emma and Ray after they've escaped Grace's house, and even if the series ended there, you could envision any number of futures for them now that they've broken free of their captivity. Or, how about Violet Evergarden? Violet ends the series having regained a not insubstantial amount of the humanity that she had been denied as a hyper-competent mail-order child soldier, and with her job as a professional letter writer secured, the future is hers to do with as she likes, and however far you want to imagine that potential future for Violet, it remains open-ended enough for you to take that exercise in headcanon synthesis as far as you like to where you're comfortable with it. Tokyo Godfathers also has an endless ending, but the film concludes at a particular point in time that leaves a huge question hanging over the status quo of our characters. Do they return to their normal lives with their families and leave homelessness behind, or do they all remain living together on the streets? 
Perhaps, for example, Miyuki returns to living with her parents, but Jin and Hannah don't have the same opportunity to go back to their families and loved ones and therefore stay homeless. To elaborate, after Kyoko is reunited with her real parents who wish to name the trio as her godfathers, hence the title of the film, it is Miyuki's father who introduces the parents to our heroes. Miyuki in turn recognises him and says, father, out loud as he enters the room and makes eye contact with her, and at that point the film moves to the end credits. It is left ambiguous as to even Miyuki's reaction and subsequent conversation with her father, and subsequently this leads to that open question of what happens next that I mentioned before. If you think that I'm just being cantankerous, then in a prime example of when Blu-ray extras tell you things the creators really wouldn't have approved of, in the closing section of one of the extras, Aya Akamoto, who you might recall is Miyuki's voice actress, she is asked what she thinks will happen next at the end of the story. She initially states that she hopes Miyuki, Jin, and Hannah will stay together even if that means they're homeless, but then retracts that in favour of them getting off the streets. Now, I'll grant Aya the benefit of the doubt in that I imagine she hadn't considered the ending in this way prior to the interview and so was probably caught off guard, whereas I've got the benefit of a script that I've still probably gone off the rails on at least once. But I think it speaks to the unclear nature of the ending and how it might be too open to interpretation on what happens next with our heroes. Now, this is not to say that there's no possible way to have written this so that Jin, Hannah, and Miyuki couldn't have met again in the near future, maybe the following Christmas, and also have them no longer living on the streets, but instead back in a stable home environment, even if a simple one. But as it stands, the film ends in such a way that it frames each person's choice to stay together versus going back to their families and homes as mutually exclusive. For the audience, too, I don't think it would be unreasonable to feel shortchanged by not seeing Miyuki and company end up with a better lot in life given all they've been through. This is probably the point where you'll wonder if I'm going to address the lottery ticket that Jin receives from the old man at the midpoint of the film, the one numbered entirely with ones and also redeemable for more money than Jin would ever have won in his lifetime if he actually were the professional star cyclist he claimed to be. Now this is only a minor quibble, but I do find it curious that Jin's destitution is the result of his gambling and that the exit from that is the result of his... gambling. Yeah, yeah, he got the ticket from the old man, but it hardly seems like a reassuring message that Jin's get-out clause from the impoverished place he finds himself in is something that is less likely to happen than being hit by lightning or becoming an astronaut. Since the lottery ticket is never even found by Jin on screen, this is the one part of the film I reckon you could probably cut without real consequence, since it's also the one part of the film's theme on coincidences that actively clashes against its message of us exercising our empathy and agency to help others. So yeah, I find the ending doesn't quite work, because while it does fit the idea of being an endless ending as I described earlier, it isn't set at a point in time in the lives of our characters where the majority of the prospective futures we can imagine for them are positive ones. After all, the film makes clear the negative impacts being homeless has on Miyuki and company, so them remaining homeless to stay together brings that baggage with it. Now this isn't to say that stories in general should never have open endings where the potential outcomes come with clear disadvantages and caveats, but for the light-hearted tone of Tokyo Godfathers, I don't think it fits to end on the idea of a hard choice between one's found family and their traditional one. Why not both, is all I'm saying. Part 7, The Finale I know that last section was a bit sour on my part, and not ideally where I'd want to leave my appraisal of Tokyo Godfathers at, but so it's absolutely crystal. The ending was about the only thing I really took issue with in the film, and it's merely a small fraction of the overall work, which, to sum up, I thought was truly charming and moving from start to finish. 
The script is precision engineered and tightly executed, bursting with wit, charm and heart. It utilises Christmas in a way that isn't preachy or saccharine, but also draws upon elements like the Three Wise Men, Silent Night, which is what Kyoko's name translates to from Japanese, and Angels to great effects. Moreover, it handles both the individual and structural issues surrounding homelessness with a deafness that allows for the characters to explore their personal demons that contribute to their current predicaments without making it too specific so as not to cover the many contributing factors that exacerbate homelessness and all of its complications and comorbidities. This never clashes with the relatively light tone of the film or its more anarchic moments, everything just gels together superbly. Tokyo Godfathers made me feel elated, it made me quake with laughter, and it made me feel profound sadness. And never once did it feel like these emotions clashed head-on. Instead, they worked as a kind of relay race, entirely intentional and crafted. Solving homelessness isn't something that will happen overnight, and it continues to be an issue that needs a more sympathetic touch than it currently gets, especially in Japan where it was reported recently on BBC News that two homeless people were turned away from a shelter in Tokyo following the landfall of Typhoon Hagibis, and the subsequent mixed reaction on Japanese social media showed there's a long way to go in getting people on board with empathy, caring and support for those less fortunate than us. It's because of this and its overall quality that Tokyo Godfathers will, in my opinion, remain timeless. Not just because it's set at Christmas, but because its messages are something we should take to heart all year round. But anyways, that wraps up my review of the film. I'd firstly like to give a massive shout out to our patron Pete's for requesting this. It was just truly a delight to cover this film in such detail, and I do hope I've done it a modicum of justice. Secondly, thanks to you as always to stalwart podcast companion The Subtle Doctor for editing and reviewing this script before I started to chew the scenery and record it. His assistance has, as always, been truly invaluable. And finally, but certainly not least importantly, to you, the listener, for taking the time to hear my thoughts on this wonderful film. If you'd like to get involved with Warrior Death Show and maybe ask for myself or Doctor to cover a show or film of your choosing, why not consider becoming a patron? The $5 tier grants you access to requests for us to cover shows, and you also get things like Discord access, early week-on-week coverage of shows, and other great benefits to boot. And if you're wanting to support us in ways beyond financially, how about leaving us a like, subscribe, or comment on wherever you find this? It always helps our discoverability, and constructive feedback is always welcome so we can make better content. But otherwise, that concludes Tokyo Godfathers from me, so as always, I wish you all a very good night, and embrace your for everyone to the ends of the universe.